Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning. So glad that you're joining us, whether on a podcast, on demand, maybe you're at one of our physical locations, maybe you're on our online community, no matter where you are today, welcome to week two in and out of the book of Revelation. So let's dive in again. John is writing to seven real churches in a country we now call Turkey. And remember, each sermon is building on the last. So I want to encourage you, if you weren't with us last week in any form, please go back and listen to the first one because one's building on the other. Okay, where are we in the journey so far in this really wild, seemingly complicated book? Well, we're just at the beginning still. Today, we're at the part where John himself describes when and actually how he's given this letter called Revelation. This is the inception point. This is how all of this begins. So you've got a Bible I'd love you to turn back to, or for the first time, to Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 9. This is what John says, I, John your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, here's here's how he begins. I'm your brother. He doesn't say, oh, I'm the apostle John. I'm the bishop over the church. He says, I'm your brother. We all know Jesus together. We share the same citizenship. We have the same passports to the same kingdom. We're all willingly wanting the reign and rule of God the Father on earth as it is in heaven through the presence of the Spirit and the Lordship of Jesus. And he says, and I'm writing you from the island of Patmos. Now, before some of you go, oh my goodness, the Greek islands. I mean, it's been two years during COVID. We haven't even been able to travel. Isn't it nice that he gets to retire at 90 years old? No, 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 no. He's 90, he has no help, and the whole island he's on is a jail. This whole island is is, is a penal colony. It's filled with robbers and rapists and murderers and political dissidents. This is a maximum security island where Rome chooses to wipe its hands of troublemakers. By the way, the island's only eight miles by five miles. And there's a great chance, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, that he's the only Christian on the island. So he's there at 90, no one to take care of him. Think about that, 90 years old. He's being persecuted. Oh, and he's the only Christian. John is suffering because he's a Christian. And notice how he frames his suffering, how he actually even views his suffering. Patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Now, that phrase is used seven times in the book of Revelation. Remember, seven in the Bible means perfection. God's trying to tell us something. So why is John here? Because of Jesus and because of the word of God. I'm in jail because I love Jesus. I'm in jail because I'm talking about Jesus. I'm in jail because I will not renounce Jesus. I'm in jail because I keep inviting people to meet Jesus. I will not call Caesar Lord and God. I love Jesus more than Caesar. I'm patiently suffering for my best friend. Now, let's just pause and work this out. Suffering is part of the Christian life. It allows us to walk alongside with Jesus. But notice this, it matters so much. This is why the suffering takes place. Actually, this is why persecution takes place in every single generation. God's word, that is the authority of scripture. So many people like rage against the Bible because of its views on money or politics or sexuality or fill in the blank. And the second is the person, claim, and work of Jesus. I mean, this is what happened 2,000 years ago. This is what happens today. Paul himself talked about it like this in 1 Corinthians 1.22. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ 
crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to non-Jews, but to those whom God has called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The cross is not attractive. Let me just say this. It's not compelling. It's not brilliant. It's not even religiously insightful. It's not even philosophically striking. Actually, the message of God can appear foolish. You could call the message stupid or idiotic or silly or unwise or imprudent, thoughtless, an irrational message. But actually, that thing is the key to reality. That message is the key to the longing of our hearts. That thing is the thing that cleans up sin. It is where love is actually seen, embodied, and found. Think about Paul. He says, look, I am one of the best Jewish Orthodox thinkers of our day. And he says, look, Jews keep trying to say to Jesus, you need to fit into my theological box, and then I'll know you're right, that you're the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. But they were saying, we still know better. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not God in flesh. Jesus cannot be the fulfillment of our faith because you keep preaching that Jesus died on a cross. To an Orthodox Jew Jew hearing that the Messiah was crucified is like saying you can fry ice. It's impossible. Why? Because the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy 21-23, anyone who's hung on a pole is under God's curse. God's Messiah can't be cursed. How could the Messiah be cursed by God? Jesus must be a fraud, or he's Satan, or he's actually a really good guy, but he's mixed up, but he's not the Messiah. He's not the hope of Israel. He's not the one who fulfills everything given to David. God's Messiah would not die a common criminal death. Oh, and then the non-Jews in Paul's day argue that reasoning and knowledge, these are the things that let us define reality or find spirituality or find God or even to see if we need God. It's wisdom. But the problem is that the good news of Jesus is not new wisdom. It's not new thinking. It's not a new philosophy to be explored. It's a person. So let me preach what I've said before. No thinking person, no deeply religious person will naturally embrace or run towards or love or understand the cross. Non-Jews want power, military might, beauty, ideals, strength, education, fill in the blank. Jews wanted Jesus to fit in their theological box. Most people think they can either outthink God or they're smarter than God or they can think their way to God. But as one brilliantly once said, God is out of reach. There is no wising up to God. Wisdom is giving up our own wisdom. This is the reason why John is in jail. And yet despite all of that, Jail, injustice, Rome declaring war on Christians at this moment, as we'll find it a little bit later, 40,000 Christians probably have been murdered by this point. You got mistreatment. Where do you find John on Sunday? Is he hiding? Is he sulking? Is he renouncing his faith to make his life easier in in the winter of his life? No, he's at church. And here's the striking thing. He's probably at church by himself. Verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. Okay, you might not know what the phrase the Lord's Day is. That's Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. That's actually why we as Christians tend to hold most of our worship services on Sunday. It is the new beginning And he's there at church, ready to hear, to pray, to listen, to worship, and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And suddenly the Holy Spirit fills the environment he's in. Now, did he expect this profound encounter? No. But he went to church anyway. Oh, this is so important. 
Common faithfulness is so critical for the long haul. John didn't say, I'm going to get the book of Revelation today. He went to be faithful. Now notice, the very first thing that happens to him is not sight. He doesn't see something, it's sound. God speaks, and it's described here like a trumpet. The voice tells John to write, to do something. It says in verse 12, I, John, turned around to see, see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. So he hears God. And can you imagine sitting in church and you're just, and suddenly like this incredibly loud trumpet voice speaks to you? I think we'd all be freaked out. He turns around in shock and we would expect him to see what? God, Jesus, the Holy... Nope. The very first thing he sees is the churches he oversees. These are the seven local uh, churches, and the image matters. Did you catch it? The purpose of local churches is to bear light, the divine presence in a dark world. But as he keeps looking at these seven churches, the vision gets clear. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Ready? Jesus, this is so important, so important for us, is in the middle of the churches. He's in the middle of the people. And by the way, he's in the middle of us right now. He's standing here right now, just like he was then. He's not far away looking down. He's among us. Now notice his description. He's called the Son of Man. Any Jew hearing this and reading this, even today, would totally know where this comes from. This gets connected all the way back to a book that we talked about a few years ago, Daniel, and it's Daniel's encounters with God as, as Daniel sees into the heavens where all this makes sense. So in Daniel 7, 9, I'm going to read this slow, and I want you to see all the connections. Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. That's God, by the way. His clothing was white as snow. His hair of his head was white like wool. Remember that. His throne was like flaming with fire, and, and its wheels were all ablaze, and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Now, verse 13. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Oh, there it is coming in the clouds, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. And, and the Son of Man was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all nations and all people of every language worshipped the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. See, what Daniel saw so long ago is now fully understood at the last book. <clears throat> the Ancient of Days is God the Father, and the Son of Man is Jesus. But here's the wild, crazy thing you need to see. As you read Revelation chapter 1, the Father and the Son are equal, and the descriptions about the Ancient of Days <clears throat> in Daniel 1 and Revelation 1 are used for Jesus. Every Jew hearing this for the first time would understand, would see the blasphemy that this is, unless it's true. Because in other words, what's being said here is that you see the Ancient of Days fully through Jesus, the Son of Man. And again, it's wrong, it's sinful, it's blasphemy, unless it's true. And it is true. 
So John's sitting in church, expecting nothing, being faithful by himself probably. He looks up, he sees the churches, and then he sees the most powerful being he's ever encountered. And yet, here's the crazy thing. He knows the person. It's Jesus. It's his best friend, the one he loved and walked with and served alongside and suffered for it and prayed to and prayed with and hung out with. But now he sees Jesus fully, holy, all-powerful. I mean, this is actually what John saw a glimpse of once for just a few minutes on the Mount of Transfiguration, but now it's permanent. This is the glorified Christ. Now let me read this again, verse 13. The Son of Man was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The robe is the clue. See, the high priest of Israel, the only one that actually could walk into God's presence in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple, actually wore these two exact items. Aaron, the very first high priest, he's the one who wore a robe just like this. Here's the point. Jesus is our permanent high priest forever. And this is so important. The very first thing that we learn about Jesus when we see him clearly is that he's our priest. You might not know this. Do you know what priest means in Latin? It means bridge builder. It means one that stands in the gap for you. In other words, what's so beautiful is Jesus is the one who builds, builds the bridge back to the ancient of days. He's the one who stands in the gap so we actually can walk across the bridge and get home. This is why the author of Hebrews said in, uh, in Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we prof profess. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize or sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every single way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So John looks up and sees his best friend, and the very first thing he says, he's, he's wearing the outfit of the high priest. But then other things are different now. His hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, the same but different. The hair on his head was white like wool. Uh, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. White, wisdom, dignity, holiness, no sin, no evil, no wrong intention. He is holy, holy, holy in both senses. He is separate from creation, he is above creation, and he's without darkness. There was never, there has never been, there never will be offense, failing, wrongdoing, or transgression. There is no shadow in Jesus. His eyes were like blazing fire. There's no hiding who you are in front of Jesus, or what you've done. You can't hide your motives or, or secrets. Everything that's done and ever will be done by churches, by countries, by people, by nations, by corporations, by every person is seen clearly by Jesus. When he looks at you, he sees everything. And like fire, all things burn up. Falseness, evil, motives are exposed, masks are removed. There's no hiding from this Jesus. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. He's heat. He's fire. He's light. He's all-powerful. When he speaks, it's like something you've never heard before. His voice is like the sound of rushing waters. Now, why does this matter? Because this is another declaration that Jesus himself is God. See, this exact phrase, the voice of God and how it sounds, is come, comes right out of Ezekiel's own encounter in the heavenlies, in the same courtroom. Ezekiel 43.2, his voice, this is God, was like the roar of rushing waters. 
and the land was radiant with his glory. In other words, everything you see in the Father, you see through Jesus, because Jesus and the Father are equal. He's God. I don't know, because we're Canadians and we live in Toronto, most of us, we live right by Niagara Falls. I don't know if you've ever gone to Niagara Falls and done the whole sort of tourist thing, but when you stand by or even go right near it on the boat, it's deafening how strong the water is. That's Jesus's voice when he speaks. Can you imagine? It says in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. I love this. What's in his hand? Seven stars. Oh, what are the seven stars? The church. Jesus owns the church. He favors us. He protects us. He does not abandon us. He's among us. He protects us. He's sovereign, even when we're being persecuted. I mean, this is what Jesus himself said back in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one's going to take them out of my hand. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. So this is this unbelievable image of Jesus owning, holding, loving the church. But this at the same time is also a declaration of Jesus's absolute ultimate power over the demonic and over history. I love when Daryl Johnson wrote this. In the first century mind, the seven stars would clearly refer to the seven planets that were known at that time. People thought that all of life was under the swing control of those planets. So people anxiously consulted astrology tables. Roman emperors understood this and associated their cosmic rule by surrounding their thrones with stars and planets. Now, in Greek religion, there was a goddess named Hecate who held stars in her hands, ready, this is amazing, and called herself the beginning and the end. <laughs> Suddenly, counter-image, alternative vision, the seven stars in Jesus' hand are in his hand. Hecate does not have the stars. Caesar does not have the stars. Jesus has the stars. The planets don't control anyone. Jesus controls everything. The stars do not run life. Jesus runs life. The Son of Man is the Lord of the cosmos. The universe is held together by Him and in Him. So those Christians being persecuted would be totally comforted. And also this is a declaration that false religion and false power, no, 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 no. Jesus is in charge. In His mouth was a sword. Now, by the way, if you do history research, this sword is a short sword. It's for close combat. And what is the sword? Well, it's simple. It's God's Word. It's the Bible, Scripture. I mean, the Bible has always been Jesus' book because the Father and the Son sent the Spirit to, to write it. That's why Paul, when talking about the armor of God in chapter 6, said this. He said, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Uh, the author of Hebrews. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates in dividing soul, spirit, spirit, joint marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, this is why the spiritual discipline or practice of study of Scripture matters so much to you. This is why your walk with Jesus has to be saturated with Scripture. This is why this matters to your family, to the church, to this region. This is why the scriptures have to have the ultimate say in your life when it comes to how you think, how you live, your faith, what you believe. I mean, what did Jesus say in John 8, 32? You shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, Jesus' word 
is always correct. It's always right. It's always authoritative. It cuts through any lie. It will cut through all misunderstanding. It will cut down all his enemies. It's interesting. It's the only weapon Jesus has. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Jesus is dazzling. Jesus is overwhelming. Jesus is beautiful. beautiful, And Jesus is terrifying to his enemies. Jesus is the greatest truth teller. He's the ultimate prophet. He's our high priest, allowing us to know and walk into the presence of the Ancient of Days. He's the king of all things and over all things. He's the king of, over all people. This is our God. This is who we give to and sing to and go to church for and live for and serve in his name. And notice, John, that's Jesus' best friend, that knew him the closest, who took care of his mom, by the way, look what happened when Jesus, in his glorified state, came close to his best friend. This is so important, especially if you grew up in a more conservative church like I did. Verse 17, John says, When I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. Oh, lots of people want to say, oh, no, he bowed down. Or, or he prostrated. No, 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 no. He went down. <laughs> he fell down. This was not voluntary. Uh, Pentecostals sometimes would call this being slain in the spirit. I don't love the analogy, but it's there. I want you to picture this. A 90-year-old senior going down in front of Jesus. Now, if you read the encounters with Ezekiel or Isaiah or many others, when God's presence moves from omnipresence to palpability, Sometimes there's a literal physical reaction to the proximity of God. You'll know it's the glorified Jesus. You'll know the Spirit of Christ is among you in a very new and close and and almost wonderfully dangerous way when you feel you should go down and die because of your sin, and yet you are loved and feel the truth of forgiveness all at the same time. Holy love and terror held together by God's presence. It's interesting, when when real revivals take place, like legit real revivals take place when the Holy Spirit lightens on a church in full power. Much of the time, if you just let history speak, there are accompanying physical manifestations. People fall over, they shake, they weep, they tremble in God's presence. Every time God moved in great power in the scriptures, there were physical reactions. Just study church history. Jonathan Edwards or Wesley or the Welsh revivals, they're full of unusual work of God. Holy laughter, weeping, falling over. Now, this really matters. Does this always happen? No. Do these things make you more spiritual or holy? No, absolutely not. Should they be paired with spiritual gifts or disciplines and, oh, never do that? Are they guaranteed? No, actually, they're quite unusual. Should it be expected or replicated after a moment? No, that's when actually things be called old. When God moves very close, and usually it's his decision, actually it's always his decision, strange things could happen. And that's exactly what happened to John. But I love what comes next. Then Jesus placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and I'm the last. By the way, if you read the Transfiguration story, he basically does the same thing. This is really comforting for us. I hope you caught it. At the same time, Jesus who is glorified, Jesus who holds everything in his hands, Jesus who's over all things and also is standing in the middle of all the church, steps down and meets the personal needs of John. Glorified, transcendent, personal, deeply close. This is so true. Hey, Sanctus Church, I just want to say this. 
Jesus is close if you're a Christian. Are you seeing him? Are you dismissing his presence as something else other than maybe emotion or an overactive imagination of the food you ate last night? No, no, stop. God is close. And it's amazing, every single time when Jesus comes close, even in really difficult times, he says, do not be afraid. Stop fearing me. I bring comfort, consolation, command, and I'm in control. Don't forget who I am. I'm the first and I'm the last. By the way, I just got to say this again. When Jesus calls himself the first and the last, again, it's another bold, shocking declaration that he is equal with God and God himself. Why? Because in the book of Isaiah, chapter 48, verse 12, God himself, Yahweh, Elohim, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, says, listen to me, Jacob, listen to me, Israel, whom I have called, I am he, I am the first and the last. But now Jesus claims this in front of John. If you're God, you can claim this. If you're not, you're the devil, a liar, or something else. But see, Jesus is equal with the Father, and he's God. Revelation 1.18, I'm the living one, I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The power of resurrection has come to pass. I have overcome death, and I have overcome Hades. By the way, we addressed this a few years ago. Hades is not the lake of fire. It's the waiting place of the dead. And at the end of time, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. We read this in Revelation 20:14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I've not only overcome death, but I actually have the power and authority to send people to death and deliver them from death. I'm supreme over all of creation, seen, unseen, past, present, future, now, and what is to come. It's interesting because lots of people of faith and lots of people without faith think about this. One Jesuit priest thinking on our modern world and our faith asked this important question. Is Jesus of the Gospels, imagined and loved within the dimensions of the Mediterranean world, capable of still embracing and still forming the center of our ever-expanding universe? Is the world not in the process of becoming more, more vast, more dazzling than God himself? Will not the universe and its complexity burst our religions asunder and eclipse our God? It's a great question. It's an honest question. But the answer is a resounding no. Jesus will not be swallowed up. God will not be eclipsed. When we read and hear and see and encounter Jesus in this full expression, the universe is put in its place. I love what St. John of the Cross, that famous Christian mystic, wrote when he said, Therefore, now you've seen Jesus, he says, if someone were now to ask questions of God or seek any vision or revelation in the ultimate sense, he would not only be acting foolishly, but be committing an offense against God, for he should set his eyes together altogether upon Christ and seek nothing beyond Christ. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. You want to know who's in control of history? Look at Jesus. You want to know who the... Jesus. So now with Jesus at the center, with Jesus over all, with Jesus so high no power can bring him down, with Jesus so high that no Caesar can overcome him, with Jesus so high, technology, power, political moves, weaponry, new discoveries, no event can overcome him. Now with our vision affixed on Jesus, those churches living under terrible persecution and us living today suddenly are affirmed. And we're actually shown who's really in charge and actually who's going to work things out.
And this becomes the motivation to continue to be faithful, even if things are difficult. See, if you pair the first and second part of chapter one together, you see this unbelievable picture of the vision of God and specifically who Jesus is. Now, what does this do for us? Well, number one, if you're a Christian, it leads us or should lead us to faithful obedience. John loved Jesus till the end. His churches and himself were persecuted, alone, isolated, and attacked, and yet were faithful. So let me just say this to you. Are you alone? Maybe you're watching literally online somewhere. Alone. Are you sick? Are you wondering what's next? Is your family falling apart? Are you literally being attacked for your faith? Look on Jesus and know he's with you, and he's with us till the very end, and he will deal with all things and all people. Everything is in his hand. Nothing is bigger than him. He has the final word. When we realize Jesus has the final word, then faithfulness can flow from that. If he's not in control, I don't know if we could trust him. Here's the second thing that's sort of uncomfortable but needed. Suffering is part of a guaranteed encounter we have with God. I wrote about this a lot in Convergence, my first book, and we teach this all the time here at Sanctus. There are guaranteed places of encounter between God and his people, and one of them is suffering with and for Jesus. And lots of people say, well, what does it mean to suffer? Suffer. We're not talking about getting cancer. We're not talking about getting sick. We're talking about when we suffer and give up the things for God. Here's what Christian suffering is. When you say no to what you really want personally, or what you desire to do, or what you're inclined to do, but actually the Bible's called it sinful, and you choose to be involved in self-denial, that's suffering for the gospel. Also, when you're marked, mocked, or marginalized, or attacked for being a Christian, that's suffering for the gospel. And what we begin to see as a pattern is every time you deny yourself, or every time I deny myself, or every single time we're mocked for our Christian faith, that is a guaranteed place of encounter between us and God. I mean, this is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.21. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Suffering like this is part of the average Christian life. And Jesus' suffering is our example. I mean, Paul, I've said this before, when he was writing Philippians near the end of his life, he's known Jesus more than any of us, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, personally encountered Jesus in a vision, was taken to the third heaven, and yet at the end of his life, what does he say in Philippians 3.10? I want to know Christ. You're like, you do. He's like, I want to know more. I want to know the power of his resurrection, and I want participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so somehow I attain resurrection from the dead. In other words, he understood. See, did you catch it? The seven churches and John and Paul frame Christian suffering as a place of encounter. Some of you probably need to take some time and say, Lord, actually, I was thinking of walking away from the Christian faith because self-denial was so painful, or actually, I, I was being attacked and I thought you'd protect me. Oh, this is one way I walk deeper with Jesus. Yes. So seeing who's in control is how we continue to remain faithful. Suffering as encounter is a place where this thing is redeemed. The next thing you're just going to hear again today, he's among us right now. He does not look down upon us. He's with us. He's sitting right beside you. And again, some, someone needs to hear this today, or many people need to hear this today. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the first and the last. 
I know we have so many people who join us who are not Christians or on the way to becoming Christians or are here because of someone else. And we always say you could be spiritual or from another religion, or you could be an agnostic or atheist or some mix of something. I just want to say, you know, our culture talks all the time about, you know, you, you need to find something more than you can ask or imagine. You know, that's what actually all the lottery, lottery companies say all the time. What would you do if, because this is so incredible if. I just want to say to you, the more than you can ask or imagine is Jesus. This is who you're looking for, whether you know it or not. His voice is like a trumpet and waterfalls. He, he, he cuts through lies. He stands among human beings and he offers to be a high priest. He's without sin. He's completely trustworthy. His eyes are fire. He sees all things. He knows all things. He'll resolve all things. He's brighter than the sun. He's holy. He's all powerful. There's no darkness in him. When he gets close to darkness, darkness flees. He's God in flesh. He's alive though he was dead. He shows us what's on the other side so we don't need to fear death. He's forgiven and broken the back of Satan. He's actually literally broken death and he's forgiven all sin if you embrace him. He holds the keys over death. He can give eternal life. He's the bridge builder. He's the one that stands in the gap. Jesus has built the bridge back to God. He's the one who stands in the gap to make things right. I just want to say again, if you're joining us, he's the one that you're looking for. He's the one that is the fulfillment of beauty. He's the one who's the fulfillment of logic. He's the one who's the fulfillment of truth. Everything that you're looking for in poetry, in songs, in education, in sex, in money, in power, in faith, it's Him. It's Him. But you need to humble yourself and admit who He is and who you're not and ask Him to forgive your stuff and claim Him as Lord and God. Everyone, this is Jesus. Remember, the book of Revelation is given so we can see him clearly. So a simple prayer as we end, we do it like this. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, that you've given us this incredible letter called Revelation. Thank you that Jesus is clear and in control. So just a few things we pray. Number one, I pray for all of us who are followers of Jesus that we would be faithful and obey him till the end. Uh, Lord, I pray you'd come close to many people that are suffering for the faith. They're either denying themselves and or in small and large ways, maybe suffering for the faith, that you'd encounter them and reassure them in that suffering, that you'll reward them. For other people right now that feel completely abandoned and alone, like John sitting alone, and they're wondering where you are, Jesus, you're good, you're a good shepherd, you're a good brother, would you literally show up now? I ask this in your name, Jesus, in Jesus' name, and tell them, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And lastly, just continue to open up the eyes and the minds of people who have not yet encountered Jesus to who you are, Jesus, so they can cross the line of faith and become followers of you, be transformed by you, to actually be changed by you, loved by you, forgiven by you. Holy Spirit, lead people to this moment, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.